Good morning. There's a lot more of you here than I expected. That's terrific. Oh, and I see children. This is very good. (laughs) Our key scripture this morning is from John 1, verses 38 and 39. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Jesus does an interesting thing, and especially in terms of someone who is a rabbi. Now, it would be very typical for a rabbi to do, if there were people who wanted to, young men who wanted to follow him, for him to start off by asking the asking them some question. What does this part of the Torah mean? So there would be some kind of test to make sure that they were worthy to follow. Jesus doesn't ask the disciples or the future disciples how much they know, how much they understand. He asks them a very simple question. What Do you want? And I want us to think about this morning this concept of what do I want? Now be careful because you're sitting in church. And it's very, very easy to say, I want God. Or if you're a child, the normal answer to anything like that is Jesus, which is the, quote, correct response. But if you really stopped and thought about it, it might not be your response at all. Now, I'm going to try and do this quickly. There was apparently a movie, and I didn't see the movie, but a movie that basically had this premise that there was this house that when you entered the house, entered this room, you would have whatever you wanted. And there's two men who are walking along with a guide approaching the house. And when they get to the door of the house, they don't want to open the door. Because what's going to happen? The truth about what they actually want is going to be exposed. And they might not want that. So as we go through the service this morning, I just want you to think about what do you want and how do you know what you want? All right, the children can go to their classes. They have a want to. <laughs> They want to be somewhere that they perceive as more fun than being in here. 
<laughs> well, hopefully there will be some fun this morning, or maybe, maybe if not fun, some, some insights this morning. Um, our vision statement says, we believe the love of God in Jesus changes everything. So the question is, how does this happen? It is clear that God is the one who initiates the relationship. In 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. So God initiates the relationship, but we have to want God. Because if we don't want God, then we're not going to want what God wants for us, which is change. When Jesus was uh, answering a question that a, an attorney asked him about the law, his response in terms of what the greatest law was, was love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. We're talking about want to this morning, and so we're going to talk about heart some. And I'll try to keep this quick, but I went off and did some exploration of the words that the Bible uses to describe some things that we talk about in terms of thinking and feeling. The word heart is used 750 times. And it's the same word that's used to identify our physical heart, which there's some new research going on that says there is some thinking that actually happens in your heart cells. Um, it doesn't all happen in your brain. So maybe God knows something that we don't. Um, but in the Bible, the, war, the heart is used to express the essence of who we are. It's, it, it's, it's who we are. It's our It's our being. Now, the other one that's interesting to me is, and this is only used 12 times, but is the word compassion. And the word for compassion is the same word as your physical intestines, an emotion that you feel deep in your gut. Um, and so I find it fascinating that God uses, in terms of language, uses a sort of physical part of our body to represent something that we would generally express as a feeling. However, when we get to mind, I would think that God would use a word that would mean brain. Never occurs. When, when the Bible talks about thought, it talks about thought. It doesn't care what the source is. It just talks about thought or understanding or inclination or all sorts of words that describe how we think, but it doesn't use the physical organ of the brain at all. Now, you may not find that fascinating, but I find that fascinating that when in talking about our deepest desire for God, God uses a physical part of our body that actually for the Jews was very much blood was life. And the organ that pumps, love, pumps blood would be the organ that controlled the flow of life. And so it makes total sense that God would use the word heart in communicating it to us in the Bible. 
Now, heart is used in a couple of different ways. Um, In Jeremiah, we have, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Not I will write it in their brain, not they will memorize it, I will put my law deep inside of who they are. At the deepest core of us is where God wants to make this covenant with us. But in Jeremiah also we have in chapter 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? For the Jews, when Jeremiah wrote this, the law had become a mental exercise. It had become ritual, as Don said in the communion meditation this morning. There was no relationship. It was just a series of activities. And the new covenant we participate in is the one that Jeremiah describes And the depth of the relationship is defined by the depth of our desire for God. We know God's desire for us. He gave Jesus on the cross to define that and to demonstrate that. The question I want to get after this morning is, how strong is our desire for God, given how strong his desire is for us? So we're going to spend a fair amount of time in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it begins, therefore. Now, I don't know if you're used to doing this, but when you see a therefore in the Bible, you probably want to ask what came before. Well, depending on how you approach the book of Romans, it's either the end of chapter 8 which talks about we're conquerors because of God's activity in our life, or it's the end of chapter 11, which is, oh, the depths of the mercies of God, who can understand them? Given that God is this powerful being who has this incredible love for us, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So I want to focus right now on the first verse Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Living sacrifices. Not dead sacrifices. Living, active And because of that terminology, living sacrifice, we begin to understand that worship isn't just what happens in this room on Sunday morning. The sacrifice occurs every moment of every day. 
Because every moment of every day, we make a choice in terms of who we desire, who we're going to serve. And God's desire is that we would desire him. It's holy. It's different. It's separate. It's pure, this sacrifice that we make. And our hope is that that's the, acti- that's the description of the activity that dominates our lives. It's pleasing because we desire what God's desires and his greatest desire is for us to desire him. So there are an infinite number of expressions of worship. Certainly we sing and we praise and we pray. But we also help our neighbors We love our neighbors. We love our spouses. Um, We care for people. Infinite numbers of ways that we can express God's love in the world that are reasonable service. Now, when the New International says true and proper, the, the actual words there mean reasonable service. It's the logical activity that you would engage in given what God has done for you. If you desire God, this is the rational thing that you would do with your life. Given who God is and what he has done for us, it is is reasonable to desire to serve him. So how do we get there? That seems pretty abstract. So Paul gives us some further instruction in verse 2 and tries to connect this together when he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. In high school, a little hard to imagine, but I stood almost 5 foot 11 tall. I weighed 105 pounds. And I was not anything close to being the macho guy. I was the, if nerd would be the normal expression. But there was a, there was a part of me that wanted to be like those guys who were the tough guys. And I decided that what I would do is I would put on something that would make me appear that way. So I decided that I would take my money and I would go down to the store and I would buy myself a Levi jacket. And I bought myself a Levi jacket. It drove my mother crazy. Because <laughs> only gang members and gangsters wore Levi jackets. From her perception, that was, a, that was an evil thing that I had put on. And I didn't understand until much later in my life um, that she had spent a lot of time as a child amongst people who probably wore Levi's jackets and in pretty rough areas. So it represented something pretty strong to her. But I thought it looked cool, and I def- desperately wanted to look like the cool guy. So I got that Levi jacket and put it on. And Paul is talking here about the external form or appearance we present. So he's talking about how we look, what we look like, and what we present in terms of our activity on the outside. We make choices all the time. And our ultimate desire motivates our choice. 
I didn't come up with this expression, but we live into what we want. So whatever you desire will ultimately determine the choices that you make. So Paul says, how do we fix this? We don't want you to look like the world looks. We want you to look like something different. But how are we going to accomplish that? So he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, this is where the words are interesting because the word do not be conformed talks about the outside. When Paul says be transformed, he's talking about the inside. He's talking about change who you are, change your being by renewing your mind. So the, the change that he's talking about is maybe closely, most closely represented by the change that a caterpillar makes to become a butterfly. It's a complete change in being. Now, the DNA is the same, but as far as we're concerned, caterpillar spins the cocoon, spends time in the cocoon, and comes out this incredibly beautiful butterfly. The essence of its being has changed. Before it crawls on the ground, afterwards it flies free. That God, that's what God wants for us. He wants us to be transformed from the inside out so that what people see on the outside isn't something that we just put on to, be, to change our appearance, but it's a representation of what's actually happening inside of us. Now, the New Testament has several lists that describe the effect of this change in being. It's kind of like getting a heart transplant. In Romans 5, Paul writes, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Peter picks up a similar theme and writes in 1 Peter, in 2 Peter, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. God's desire is to change much more than our appearance. God's desire is to continually be changing who we are as individuals, as a church. Now, because that's true, and if that happens, then Paul ends Romans 12, 1 and 2 with these words. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. When our desire matches God's desire, then his will is much easier to accept. And it's much easier to determine. When my desire matches God's desire, I don't have to spend a lot of time doing what we normally do, which is rationalizing. Is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? If our desire is for God, it's really easy to make the choice. As we talked about last week, 
if my desire is to get to Los Angeles and I'm on I-5, I don't have very much difficulty deciding which exit I'm going to take. I'm not going to take any exit until I go get over the grapevine. I'm just not, because it won't get me where I want to be. Now, I often draw pictures, and as I've been working on this over the last couple of weeks, I hope this will make some sense to you. Um, I realize that we've got a couple things going on in our lives, and there's probably more than this, but I'm going to focus on two this morning. We have the direction that we're headed, and the direction that we're headed can either be towards satisfying self or it can be toward God and God's eternal purposes for us. We also have desire. We want things. Now, we can either want things for ourselves, or we can want God. And I want that... Because I've been struggling with this as, and even thinking about how this plays out. I'm a thinking person. I read a lot, I think a lot, but thinking about and trying to comprehend what does it mean to want God? Not to know about God, but to actually desire God. I think if I can ever get that figured out, it'll make a huge difference. So making a decision to follow Jesus is a decision to turn around Look at Jesus and move in his direction. And I think Paul's desire in Romans 12, 1 and 2 is to have us develop a fundamentally different desire that will motivate continual change in our being. When we put these two things together, we find some interesting results. When my direction is toward self and my desire is for self, the biblical description of that is pretty clear. I'm dead. Now, there's an interesting thing in terms of how this plays out in the world around us, and we'll try to put this all together this morning. You know a lot of dead people, but they don't look and act dead. Matter of fact, they seem to be pretty happy, right? Now, there are people who um, struggle with various forms of addiction and, and things, and I was in the ER on Wednesday with my dad, and since the door wasn't closed, we hear all this stuff going on. And there was a 55-year-old woman who came in and she had either attempted suicide or was experiencing a drug overdose. Her blood alcohol level was very high and they were working to revive her and make sure that she got some care afterwards. So the desire for self and the direction towards self can get you in a place that can get you really dead. But a lot of people just pretend, and because they have no desire for God and they're not headed towards God, they're just blissfully happy. There's no stress in what's going on in their life. So where do we go from there? I don't know why I chose to put desire first, but if we, if we all of a sudden figure out that desire for self isn't working and we desire God, 
But our direction maintains or remains that we're looking to fulfill our own needs. So our focus is on ourself, but our desire is for God. In that case, I think we're deceived. And the example is people who are seeking fulfillment of the desire through one experience after another. They're looking for something to happen in terms of how they feel. It hasn't changed or affected their behavior at all. They're still walking the same direction, but they're wanting to be someplace else. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but there's a lot of it that goes on. Now, it's interesting because when we try to reach out to those people, oftentimes what we try to get them to understand and what we try to present to them and what we communicate to them is that they need to change their actions. And so it becomes a, it becomes a series of rules and do nots and all that stuff and that's not very appealing um, to people. So what if we um, get our direction right but our desire is still for self. We're looking to God and walking his way, and yet I'm still wanting to satisfy my own needs because I care more about me and I want things for me more than anything else. As soon as this happens or when this happens, our activities begin to be seen as have-tos rather than want-tos. Now, nobody has to raise their hands. And it's probably on a scale of 1 to 10. Where were you at this morning when you got up in terms of coming here? Were you at 1 in terms of have to? Or 10 in terms of want to? it makes a whole lot of difference in terms of how you experience what's going on this morning. And unfortunately, for many of us in terms of our background, we've spent a lot of time in the right direction, but without the right desire, and all of life becomes duty. It's something I have to do. Now, I grew up, well, I grew up as a preacher's kid. So when the church doors were open, we had to be there. It was a have to. So I spent a lot of my life doing have to's. And only as I'd become an adult and started to learn and know God more has the desire changed and it becomes more a want to. Now what happens when we get both of these things together? We're looking to God and walking his way and we're wanting to know God and we're desiring him, then we should be experiencing delight. That's where we want to be. Because then we would be experiencing joy in our life. I trust God and I desire to know him more than anything. And all of life is worship as I surrender to God.
So to the world around us, we not only look different on the outside, but I'm becoming very different on the inside. Christians should be the happiest people in the world. Because if our desire is for God and our direction is toward God, we should be experiencing incredible joy. Because God says if we desire him, he will fulfill our desire. And as we get more and more of God, the joy within us should deepen and deepen. And it ought to just be radiating from us. Unfortunately, Oftentimes, we don't look that way. Um, I know I've spent the last couple of years, and who knows how long, depressed, clinically depressed. I wasn't a very happy person. And I wasn't a happy person because most of my desire was for what I wanted. And it didn't get met very often. So I got cranky, sometimes really cranky. And so I'm getting some help now and basically discovering that I need to change those desires. And I need to change how I think. I need to be, I need my mind renewed. So how does that happen? Now, this is where things get really interesting. We're going to talk about habits and how they relate to desire. A habit is an acquired behavior pattern that regularly followed until it has become almost involuntary. Shirley's term for this is our default. It's what I do by default. So I want you to just think about, I asked you last week to think about habits that you have. Now, If I asked you, when you pick up your toothbrush in the morning and you put your toothpaste on your toothbrush, where do you put it in your mouth first? Did you have to think about it? I bet you had to think about it, but if you actually picked up the toothbrush, put some toothpaste on it, and moved your hand, where would it go? It would go to the same place it went the last time, and you didn't think about it at all. My most interesting experience with this was I was gone for three or four weeks. I think I had gone to Africa, and I came back to work, and I worked in IT, and I had tons and tons of passwords, and we couldn't write them down, and I couldn't remember what my password was to get into my system. (laughs) And one of my coworkers said, well, that's easy. Just put your fingers on the keyboard and start typing. Sure enough, my muscles remembered when my brain did not because it was a habit. It was done over and over and over again, so I didn't have to think about it. Many habits are very good, and without them, we'd have to think consciously about far too many things. What I've been reading says that 90% of what we do is unconscious. It's only about 10% of what we do that we actually rationally think about and make a conscious decision about. Now, the other one I thought about, and I thought about it because I did it, I made 
something change in the routine. I make cereal for us every morning. And when I'm making the cereal, Shirley's cereal is on the left and my cereal is on the right. And there's slightly different mixes to the cereal. For some reason, I reversed it. I had to think a whole lot all the way through the process till I was done because I had flipped where things were supposed to be. Now, if I flipped them every day for about six months, I would have a new habit and I wouldn't have to think about it anymore. In our spiritual lives, we tend to focus on knowledge and skill. That's where we are when we're in that direction category. We want to get better. We want to get better at what we know. We want to get better at how we practice. Um, we've got a class on spiritual disciplines. We want to get better at praying and better at Bible study. We want to get better at all that stuff. And so we focus in knowledge and skill, and they're good things. But they're not sufficient to help us establish the habits that will carry us through the difficulties of life. When we add desire, we get a habit. Habits basically consist of knowledge and skill and desire. And so often we focus on the knowledge and skill but don't focus near enough on the desire. And desire is important because on average it takes two months to develop a new habit, a new default. We need the want to the desire provides. Now the weird thing about this is that habits can help us increase desire. Now, I don't know about your experience with coffee, I had an experience, interesting experience with coffee. I tasted it once, decided I didn't like it, and I never had it again. So I go to Starbucks fairly frequently. I come home smelling like coffee, but I don't drink coffee. Matter of fact, I drive them crazy because I generally just buy a bottle of water um, and uh, don't spend as much as I'm supposed to spend when you show up in Starbucks. Um, my understanding is it takes a while to develop a taste for coffee. You have to drink it for a while. And I don't totally understand what that desire is, but there's a want to that keeps you drinking it until you get to the point that you can't start your morning Without it, it's become a huge want to instead of something that maybe started as a have to or I'll experiment with this, but I was headed some direction and eventually I developed that desire. As we conclude this morning, my hope for all of us is that we would be able to say with Paul, as he says in Philippians 3, 10 to 11, I want to know Christ 
Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. My hope is that you will desire to desire God more, that you'll want God. That you want eternal life because you want to be with God. I don't know what else, what the other things are that heaven consists of. I really don't understand that. I've read Revelation lots of times. Still can't figure out exactly what heaven's going to be. Except for one thing. I know God's there. And I want to be with him. And my hope is that you'll pursue developing habits that bring you into contact with God and help to increase your desire for him. That's really what the class on spiritual disciplines is about. It's not about learning about spiritual disciplines. It's about practicing things that will grow your desire for God. So I want us all to be able to say with Paul, I want to know Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that we can come to you. That you desire for us to communicate with you. And Father, I desire that we would desire you more than anything. And that because that's our desire, that we would be willing to let you mold us and shape us and change us into who that you desire us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.